You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis 14, we'll be reading the entire chapter. It's my intention to try to do the whole chapter this morning. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Gedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedar Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedar, Kedar Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Canarmium and Suzim in Ham, the Amim in Shevah Kariathim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Piran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all of the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Temer. Then king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined in battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedar Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elassar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all of the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all of the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedar Laomer and the kings who were with, were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, in the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of, most, of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and, he, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. 
Let Aner, Eskal, and Mamre take your share. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing, Lord, as we seek to understand uh, this particular passage, how it fits in the overall message of salvation. As we seek to understand why you've recorded this for us, O Lord, as we seek to understand what your purpose is here, as we seek to understand how to apply this story uh, from such a long time ago on the other side of the world, uh, how, it, how it applies to us, O Father. So Lord, we look to you this morning. That you would speak to us through your word. And we praise you in advance, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Our Bibles have pictures in them. I was waiting for a reaction on that. Tina, I actually was thinking of you, you know. I was thinking, when I said that our Bibles have pictures in them, I'm thinking Tina back there saying, wait a second, I don't have no pictures in mine. And I, I, I'm not talking about the Bibles that, like this, they're called picture Bibles. Have you ever seen the picture Bibles? They come in all kinds of different flavors. A few years ago, it's, well, it's been more than a few years ago, Samantha was, I think, still maybe high school. But she was working. And she saved up a lot of money and bought me one of those picture Bibles. It's really big. Uh, you know, the big fancy one in the King James translation. It has these, uh, these pictures in it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something else this morning talking about certain places in Scripture where we have these breathtaking glimpses, if you will, of heavenly realities, where the actual words themselves begin to form this brilliant picture. Um, I, I would submit to you that Genesis 14 is one of those places. That's why I want to take it, really. I'm not saying we can't divide it up for other purposes and take it in smaller pericopes, but for this morning... I would like to look at it as a whole because it paints a marvelous picture that we need to see. I believe it's been said that history, the history of mankind is a history of war. We've probably all heard that. Uh, I don't remember where I've heard that, but I've heard that many times. And the history of the ancient world is no exception. I mean, Jesus makes it clear in, in, his, uh, in his famous Olivet Discourse where he says uh, these words uh, that we will hear of wars and rumors of wars. He, uh, it's his desire that we're not alarmed, for he says this must take place. Well, our text begins with more than uh, a rumor of war. It actually begins with war, doesn't it? And we have these kings whose names are a struggle for us to even pronounce. Our text really begins with a war that's fought between the kings of Shinar. And we may recognize the word Shinar. Uh, Shinar is Babylon. Um, and kings of Shinar, Elasser, Lamb, Goyim, led by Awan, Kedar, Laomer. That's on one side of the battle. On the other side of the battle, we have the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. And uh, here we're told that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah apparently had been tributaries to Kedar Laomer, meaning that they were being taxed to some degree because we're told that they were serving them and that they sold, served them for 12 years. Apparently in the 13th year, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors decided they had enough. They rebelled against Kedar Laomer 
And in the 14th year, Kedar Leomer shows his deep displeasure by this, and he declares war. He goes on a rampage, and it's important that we see that as these kings come down into the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, which would have been south of the Dead Sea. So they're coming from like Babylon in that region, and they most likely came down the east side of the Dead Sea, the east side of the Jordan, down through those regions, and they just sack everything that stands up to them on the way down. I mean, they're on a rampage, and it's important that we see that. Hold on to that for a moment. Eventually, they make their way down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and if you look at verse 11, we're told that they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Verse 12 informs us that they also took Lot, and who was dwelling in Sodom, and they took his possessions. And then in verse 13, we learn that one escapes and he comes and tells Abram the news. Now, you'll recall from an earlier study, actually from earlier studies, I should say plural, and, um, and this will be by way of review, that um, strife had broken out between Abram and Lot's folks just as they come up out of Egypt. Uh, they're getting very, God is blessing them, and they're getting quite wealthy. And they have all these livestock, and they have all of these uh, servants, and the land simply just couldn't support both of them. Strife breaks out between them. And um, Abram has a solution. Rather than allowing this to become a wedge, his solution is that they separate, that they separate from each other. You'll recall that Abram offers Lot first dibs. Lot lifts up his eyes. He sees this luscious land that's in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he chooses it for himself. And his uh, self-centered eyes, his ambitious eyes, take him from the righteous company of Abram to the wicked company of Sodom. Uh, do they not? And we have talked about that. And of course now, uh, Lot is finding himself caught up in this rebellion and being carried off uh, by, by um, Kedar Laomer. Now in verse 14, we find Abram's reaction to this. We're told that when he heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he gathers up 318 men of his household and goes off in pursuit. And here we get a glimpse of how impressive Abram's household is. I mean, he takes 318 men and goes off on this expedition. Now, it's hardly believable that Abram took all of his men and went on this expedition because that would have left, that would have left um, all the ladies with all of the, the cattle and all the livestock and everything right out there in the middle of nowhere, but, uh, open to... Uh, intruders and raiders and what else. So certainly he left a skeleton crew behind when he went on this expedition. So he had 318 people that he could spare for this expedition. And he had a skeleton crew that he could leave behind. It's a very large company of people. One commentator suggests that he may have had a thousand people. So we get an idea of how much the Lord has been blessing Abram. He, he's, 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 it's quite a household he has here. In verse 15, Abram proves, he proves to be an effective leader. If you look there with me, we're told that he divides his forces against them, that is, Kedar Laomer and his three allies, and he does this by night, and he really gives them a whooping, chasing them all the way up into Syria. And in verse 16, Abram brings back all the possessions that were taken. He brings back his, his nephew Lot with all his possessions, brings back the women and the people, and upon his return... Abram's met by two individuals, the king of Sodom and this other individual who's quite mysterious, uh, Melchizedek, a very mysterious character. 
that we're going to look at here in a few minutes. But let's pause right now. Having read the story, having briefly retold the story, uh, we might pause right now and scratch our chins and scratch our foreheads uh, and ask ourselves, okay, what are we to make of this story? You know, what are, we, what are we to make of this? And as I've said in earlier messages, these stories and incidents that we have recorded for us concerning the life of Abram are selective. They're selective. Uh, they're given to us for a, a particular purpose. Uh, they're not willy-nilly, not just, well, that's a nice story, let's put it in. Or that's a nice story, let's put that in. No, there's a purpose for each narrative that we come to. There's a purpose for each story. So what is the Holy Spirit up to? I mean, what are we to glean from this? Is this a simple story about Abram's devotion and faithfulness to his nephew? First time I've read that story, that's what it looked like to me. And many times after I'd read the story, not maybe gave a whole lot of thought to it. I think we stumble trying to pronounce the names of all of these kings. Um, we get to the narrative and maybe we find ourselves at the end and think, man, I'm not sure what that was all about, but I'm at chapter 15 now, so I'll keep going. Uh, what is this all about? Well, Abram's devotion to his nephew is certainly in view, but I'd argue that there's a lot more. And for one, there's many things that could be said about this. There's many points of application that could be made about this. But I just really have one I want to make this morning, is that there's a picture here. There's a picture. And it's a glimpse of something we don't get a glimpse of very often. It's a chapter where God, if you will, removes the veil for a moment and shows us heavenly realities. And then He'll put the veil back on after chapter 14 is over. So that's what I would like to show as best as I'm able this morning. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Let's begin looking at this by asking a question. And I think this question says a lot. It says a lot about us. There's a, there's a sharp indictment to us uh, as I ask this question. Um, and I, I say it because a lot of times we don't even ask this question. And the fact that we don't ask this question says a lot about us. Okay, what question do I have in mind? The question is this. What gives Abram the right to take up swords against these four kings? Of course, as 21st century Americans, we answer quite quickly, they took Lot. <laughs> With that answer, we're ready to say that gave Abram the right to go fighting all over the region. This answer is so presumptuous. And this answer keeps us from seeing what's really going on here. It blinds us. We are a highly presumptuous society because we're comprised of highly presumptuous people. What do I mean by that? Well, presumption is the act of transgressing the limits of boundaries in inappropriate ways. Now we, I mean, we, what gives us the right to push all the limits? If you think of all the limits that we're progressively pushing more and more with each passing year, you know, we're redefining marriage. Um, you know, we have the right to kill the unborn children. You know, we have the right basically to do whatever we want. We can, 
we can proclaim what is right and we can proclaim what is wrong. As a culture, we think we can do anything we want. Whatever gave us that idea? And because we're all breathing in this arrogant air, when we come to stories like this, we're blinded by what is going on. We can't see because we're blinded by presumption. We think that Abram automatically has the right to go all over Palestine, kicking Heine, simply because his nephew Lot has been taken. Is that really true? I would say absolutely not. That is not true. That just by virtue of the fact that Abram's nephew has been taken, that does not give Abram the right to bear swords against these kings. Um, so we have to remember, Abram's a private individual. Try that. As a private individual. You know, try that and see what happens. God has fixed a balance of power in the world to keep us from killing each other, to keep us from literally destroying each other. And it really doesn't go over very well. So what gives Abram the right as a private individual to do this? Well, my answer is God does. It's not because Lot has been taken. It's because God has given him this right and this privilege. Now you might be saying, oh, wait a second, Rick. How can you say that? How do you know that? I know that because Melchizedek says so. Well, who's Melchizedek? Well, we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But notice what he says in verses 19 and 20. Melchizedek says to Abram, Blessed be God, blessed be Abram by God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So very clearly, Abram has God's blessing for doing what he has done. Very clearly, Abram has the blessing of Almighty God. So it's very clear that Abram has been giving marching orders by God on this expedition. John Calvin, in his commentary on the story, he asks the question. He writes, quote, whether it was lawful for Abram, a private person, to arm his family against kings and to undertake a public war, um, he answers the same way. Who gives, who gives Abram the right to do this? God gives him the right to do it. Uh, Calvin continues. He says, I do not, however, doubt that as he went to the war endued with the power of the Spirit, so also he was guarded by a heavenly command that he did not transgress the bounds of his vocation. Abram attempted nothing rashly, but rather that his design was approved by God will appear presently from the commendation of Melchizedek. We may therefore conclude that this war was undertaken by him under special direction of the Holy Spirit. It was taken by him under special direction of the Holy Spirit. Calvin's such a misunderstood theologian. People who don't know Calvin or don't understand Calvin uh, immediately run off to predestination and things of that such. But Calvin, I think, would have been better uh, labeled as a theologian of the Holy Spirit because he speaks of the Holy Spirit so much. He says here we have a campaign under the special direction of the Holy Spirit. And Calvin makes a really important point of application here. He writes, quote, Therefore, this peculiar suggestion of the Holy Spirit ought no more to be drawn into a president than the whole war which Abram had carried on. Now, I take what he means here to be that what we have here is not prescriptive, but it is descriptive. You understand what I mean by that? This isn't something for us necessarily to imitate. It's something for us to, to, to know about. It's describing something that took place. Something that can't really be recreated again under certain circumstances. 
It's not giving us a prescription here. It's giving us a description. But what it is describing is something that we're to know, we're to understand, and we're to bask in. And that's what I want to do this morning, is bask in this. Let me flesh this out some more, and I think it'll become clearer. What's going on here is far more than Abram simply going to try to rescue his nephew, Lot. I mean, what gives Abram the right to bear arms against four kings? Mind you, when he sends his men in there, when Abram and his men go in there, they're going in there with swords. They're going to be taking life. It's a serious matter. What gives him that right? Well, answer. Abram may be a newcomer to the land. He may be a newcomer. A newcomer. He may be a stranger. He may be an alien. But the Lord has given the land to him, hasn't he? Abram is really the true king of this land. The watching world doesn't know that. The watching world does not know that the Lord made a promise to Abram and said, listen, this land, I'm going to give it to you, and it's going to be yours forever. The watching world doesn't know this. That the Lord has made this promise that Abram is its rightful king. And in this story, the Lord is, if you will, pulling the veil off of the true heavenly reality, of the true fact that Abram is king of this land. So what gives Abram the right to take up arms against these kings? Answer, Abram is king. That's what gives him the right. What gives him the right to bear arms? Abram is the land's rightful king, even though in this life he's a pilgrim in it, he's a stranger in it, for a short period of time. It's nevertheless been decreed that it's going to be his land, hasn't it? So here we see the life of faith, which in many respects is invisible. It becomes visible for a moment, doesn't it? And it becomes an extraordinary picture of the life of faith. I mean, all the way down to the minute details. I mean, how else could Abram have been successful in this campaign if the Lord was not with him? I mean, 318 men, that's an impressive household. Not an impressive army. I asked you to hold on to something early on. Kedar Leomer and his three buddies, they come down out of, you know, they come down the east side of the Jordan, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, the east side of the, 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 the wouldn't have been the Dead Sea at that time, but at least down the, the east side of the sea. And they're, they're basically destroying anyone who stands up to them. No one has been able to stand up to this, to this force. And then Abram goes in with 318 of his men. And, he, and, he, and he's victorious. How else can we explain that uh, if the Lord was not with him? Here we see an extraordinary picture of the life of faith. But secondly, notice the interaction between Abram and the king of Sodom. When Abram returns, the king of Sodom approaches him. If you look at verse 21, the king of Sodom comes to him and says, quote, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, what is he referring to? He's referring to all of the the possessions and the people and everything that, that Abram is carrying back. He's carrying all this stuff back to uh, its rightful owner. 
He's bringing Lot back with all his possessions. He's bringing the women. He's bringing the people. He's bringing the children. He's bringing all of their goodies as best as they're able. And the king of Sodom is basically saying, listen, you know, um, keep all the goods for yourself. Just give me the people. And in verse 22, Abram answers, he said to the king of Sodom, quote, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. Now, what is Abram getting at? Well, it's as the rightful owner of the land that Abram has acted. It is as the servant of the Lord that Abram has acted. And Abram's blessing has come from God's hand. And he wants everyone to understand that his blessing has come from God's hand, not the king of Sodom's. It's come from God's hand. And furthermore, Abram doesn't want to be misunderstood as some kind of mercenary for hire. Think about what that would look like. Why did Abram get involved? Yeah, some say it was to save his lot. Nah, I don't think so, man. He got this, he's a wealthy guy. He's on about money. And he, he realized he could go up there and he could, he could really cash in a bunch of bucks up there. No, no, that can't be said. See, Abram's on about one thing. He's on about the glory of God. He's on about the glory of God. And this is really an extraordinary act of faith, particularly because of the timing. Think about the timing. Abram is victorious. I don't doubt that there were people that were, would literally have fallen at his feet. He's receiving praise probably all over the place. That's a really difficult time to be on about the glory of God, isn't it? Right after an achievement. Right after a victory of some kind. Right after you've been called in the office and the boss said, man, you do an you're doing an extraordinary job. I have a promotion for you. Here's an office. It's yours. Here's a desk. It's yours. Here's a raise and salary. It's yours. It's in that moment where we're probably less likely to be humble, isn't it? It's in that moment where we're probably less likely to be on about the glory of God. But here we find Abram in that very moment all about one thing, and that's the glory of God. You see what an extraordinary picture of life, of the life of faith we have here, where the veil is lifted, if you will, off the promises and the watching world is able to see, boy, there's something up with this Abram. How did he pull this off? God is with him everywhere he goes. Well, yeah. This Abram is more than just a private individual running around here. He's the heir of this entire land. Now, upon Abram's return, he's also met by a, a mysterious visitor, Melchizedek. Probably one, arguably maybe the most mysterious figure in the Scriptures. It's just a lot of things. I mean, he comes out of nowhere. We're, not, we're told two things about him. We're told, one, that he's king of Salem. Salem is probably early Jerusalem. If you think of Jerusalem, Salem is, is probably Jerusalem that he's king of. It literally means peace, so he's king of peace. His name, by translation, is king of righteousness. Secondly, we're told not only is he king of Salem, but he's also priest of the Most High. And all kinds of questions arise here. I mean, 
Um, he's such a high priest that we find Abram submitting to him. Abram pays him tithes, one-tenth of everything. Furthermore, Melchizedek blesses Abram. The author to the letter of Hebrews points this out. He says in Hebrews 7, verse 7, that it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So in other words, Melchizedek is superior to Abram. And we'll ask ourselves this question, who is this man? Who is he? How did he become, how did he become a priest? How did he become a high priest? I mean, when was the ceremony? Does he have a congregation? And if he does, where is this congregation? Who are these people? Um, we, we don't read anything about any of this. And in fact, the mystery is opened up in Hebrews chapter 7 where we read these words. Uh, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to me. There we're told unto Abram a portion of the tenth part of everything. Melchizedek is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever, seeing how great this man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Okay, we read the Genesis narrative. And I think you'll relate with this. You read the Genesis narrative, and it seems like Abram is the guy, doesn't it? Like Abram's the guy of faith. He is the most faithful person in the land. He is the man of faith. He is God's man under him and Abram's household. This is, this is the church, if you will, as we're going through uh, these narratives. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, comes Melchizedek, who is superior to Abram, high priest to God Most High, king of Salem. You know, he's not only king. There's something really extraordinary. I mean, there's plenty of kings in the Scriptures. The Judean kings, David and company. <clears throat> plenty of them. But uh, there's... there's not a lot of, and, and we could say there's plenty of priests, but we don't have both in one, do we? Where a person is high priest and king at the same time. In fact, we have a story of one king usurped the work of a priest and went into the temple and offered sacrifices and ended up leprous over it. He was punished. He was leprous until he died. Don't do that. You're king, you're not priest. And if you're priest, don't try to usurp the throne because you're priest, you're not king. Melchizedek is king and he's priest. And he's actually a mediator because he's mediating in verses 19 and 20 between Abram, the father of the faithful, and God, isn't he? And because of this, some have concluded that Melchizedek is Christ pre-incarnate. Some have concluded that. Uh, in, in my own judgment, and just take this as my own judgment, I don't think that's the case. The reason is Psalm 110, verse 4. There's other reasons, but Psalm, 10, 1, Psalm 110, verse 4, which the author to the letter of Hebrews makes very clear, speaking of Christ, says that you are a priest. That is, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It seems to me that if Jesus was Melchizedek, then it would be worded a little bit different than that. 
Why would it say he's after the order of Melchizedek? Wouldn't it say something like Jesus, who is Melchizedek, is after the order of Melchizedek? Um, so I think it's better to see Melchizedek. And there's been a number of, over the years in church history, you know, some have thought Melchizedek was Shem, but we can't go there. I think Martin Luther considered Melchizedek Shem. Uh, Shem, who, uh, if you follow the genealogies, if the genealogies haven't skipped any generations, they often do. But if they haven't, then Shem is still alive at the time of Abram. He's alive a few years beyond Abram's death, actually, if I remember right. Um, but the thing about it is, the author to the letter of Hebrews tells us that he's without genealogy. We have a genealogy of Shem. So I don't think we can say he's Shem. Some have said he's, that Melchizedek's an angel, but I don't think that either. What do I think? I, my judgment, and this is a common interpretation, um, is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He points to Jesus. And he points to Jesus in this way. He points to Jesus as priest, as king, and as mediator. Now this is something brand new in terms of our study of Genesis, isn't it? It's like we're reading along. We come to this war and Abram rises up and the veil is lifted off. And here we have the king of the land, Abram. So Abram is king. And as we begin to see, whoa, Abram is king. Not so fast. Abram is king, but he's under another king. Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek is pointing to Jesus. You see the picture we have here in the Old Testament? I can't wonder if Paul, you know, as he was running around sharing the gospel, he was using his Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures as they were called. I can wonder if he ever preached a gospel message from Genesis 14. I'm thinking that he did. I'm thinking that he said this Melchizedek, you see, he points to Jesus. There he is. The veil has been lifted. And there we see. There we see in part a wonderful picture of the faith. What is Abram doing? He's ruling the land and having dominion over it. That's our calling, isn't it, as human beings? And he's doing it under Melchizedek. We're to do this under Christ, are we not? There we see a picture of kingdom life right there just laid out right before us. And we can look forward. We can look forward to seeing this. Not in type, not in shadow, but we'll look forward to seeing this uh, perfectly uh, in the next life. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for this narrative and this story. Father, uh, we thank You, Lord, for giving us these things, these pictures these word pictures, if you will, where we see these marvelous things, amazing things, things that, Father, we could see much more if it weren't for our eyes being clouded by sin. Forgive us of our presumptuousness, Father, I think, which really blinds us to what's going on here. All we see is Abram rescuing his nephew Lot. Father, I fully believe there's so much more going on here, that you've really pulled the veil back that we can truly see the true reality that Abram is the rightful owner of the land. It's been given to him. He is the rightful king. 
And we see in Melchizedek a type, figure of Christ. And even if we were to take the interpretation that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ, oh Father, it doesn't change our, it doesn't change the glimpse of what we see. Father, thank you for giving this to us. And help us, O oh Lord, to drink from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.